Thank you for tuning in to Georgia College Connections on WRGC 88.3 FM. Tonight, we conclude this year's collaboration with Georgia College's John H. Lounsbury College of Education to feature their social justice dialogue series by broadcasting a conversation with Peter Balakian. Peter Balakian won a Pulitzer Prize for the poetry collection Ozone Journal, in which he recounts a journey to the Syrian desert to find remnants of the Armenian Genocide. As an Armenian-American, Balakian has written and translated several works about the Armenian Genocide, including his great-uncle's eyewitness account entitled Armenian Golgotha and his own Black Dog of Fate, a memoir. Peter Balakian delivered the keynote address to the 2018 Social Justice Dialogue series in early March. He is interviewed in this conversation by Georgia College literature student Olivia Julian. We take you now to this pre-recorded interview between Olivia Julian and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Peter Balakian. My name is Olivia Julian. I'm here with Peter Balakian. Um, welcome to Georgia College Connections, and we're just so excited that you're joining us today. Thank you. Good to be with you. So you're coming to Georgia College for the Education Department Social Justice Series. And so my first question for you is, what does social justice mean to you? Well, I think social justice has, you know, a broad range of meanings. There is no one simple notion. It is a rubric that suggests that there is an issue that demands ethical accountability and ethical attention. And that issue is bound up in an imbalance of power and perhaps a historical legacy that has gone wrong. Therefore, there needs to be now attention, moral and ethical attention, to solving an ethical problem that's been left undone. So how has the global fight for social justice inspired you and impacted your work? You probably know my most well-known social justice issue has to do with the legacy of the Armenian Genocide. So that's, that's where I would go. You know, the legacy of the Armenian Genocide is a morally important one, and its implications affect all post-human rights atrocity histories. The Armenian case is important because the largest Christian minority population was exterminated from its historic homelands in Turkey in 1915, and that is the Armenian population, which had been living on its historic homeland since you know, about 6th century BCE. And the, the genocide committed against the Armenians behind the screen of World War I by the Ottoman Turkish government went unpunished and went unacknowledged by the perpetrator now, the rest of the world has been, uh, you know, very much in witness and testimony to the Armenian Genocide. It is one of the more important human rights histories of the modern era, and it was covered in huge ways during the time it happened in the 19-teens and 20s. But in the ensuing decades, the history simply fell into a black hole of memory loss in part amplified by the Turkish government's really virulent efforts to 
wipe out the memory and cover up and deny. And so the Turkish denial, as it's known, is really one of the most, I guess, famous of its kind. The Turkish government's denial is an international scandal, and the Turkish state has gone to nation states around the world trying to interfere with the representation of the Armenian genocide in the media and in education. I'm happy to say most of this uh, is failing and has failed, but it's still the, the efforts are still there. And Turkey's refusal to even offer acknowledgement and apology, let alone reparations, after the destruction of the entire Armenian population, about over two million people and all of their material wealth, movable and immovable wealth, no apology, no restitution, no reparations, denial, cover-up, coercion. So that's a pretty dark narrative. This is a very, very dark history. And so my work on this front uh, has been very much involved in bringing attention to the importance of this history and pushing for Turkish apology and acknowledgement and working with third parties, bystander states and, and communities to stand up with the Armenian population worldwide in a strong uh, redress to Turkish denial. So that, that, that has defined a piece of my social justice project and the, the idea that genocide demands no accountability is something that affects every human on the planet because the denial of genocide is the final stage of genocide because it seeks to demonize the victims and rehabilitate the perpetrators and it emboldens the perpetrators to keep doing more of the same your greatest work involving the armenian genocide is your Great Uncle's memoir, is that correct? Well, I'm the collaborative translator of that. My own memoir, Black Dog of Fate, you know, probably is the better known of, of the books I've done on the Armenian genocide, but my great uncle's book is an extraordinary piece of work. What was it like discovering that? I have to say it was monumental, <laughs> and I write about it in my own memoir. So there's a chapter near the end of Black Dog of Fate called Reading a Skeleton. And I write about the discovery of my, my great uncle's uh, Armenian Genocide Survivor memoir. I think it's one of the most important books of its kind of the 20th century. It had a big impact on my understanding of the world and I spent more than 10 years translating it with help, of course. I'm the collaborator on this. So I spent a lot of my life with that memoir. And it's a very important book that I think every citizen of the modern age and our world today should read. As I understand, your grandmother and great uncle and some other family members were survivors of the genocide. What do you think is the value of a survivor's story in our understanding of historical atrocities? I think survivor stories offer us a unique insight into history first, because scholarly works take us 
to the places they do, and they're vitally important. That goes without saying. Scholarly works give us context, and they give us documents from institutions. They allow us into the event that way. But the survivor testimony allows us into the event from a very personal perspective in which the reader becomes a different kind of absorber of history and understands the impact of institutional mass violence on the individual self, on the body. It gives us an insight into trauma. And historians now have come to use memoir with much more confidence than they did 20 years ago when they were suspect, you know, saying, oh, well, it's just subjective. And historians have grown a bit in this way. They've come to see that subjective experience is profound. Human individual testimony is profound. We get insights into trauma and into detail and into the body and into the psyche and the mind. We understand family relations during catastrophic mass violence. So the memoir, the survivor memoir, has become a a very, very valued genre. You're listening to an interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Peter Balakian. Tonight's program was recorded around Balakian's keynote address to the 2018 Social Justice Dialogue Series in early March. Stay tuned, and we'll be back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections. We return now to a conversation between Georgia College's Olivia Julian and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Peter Balakian. Peter Balakian delivered the keynote address to the 2018 Social Justice Dialogue series in early March. Growing up, I know you were close with your grandmother. What was your experience growing up with her? As I write in my memoir, I grew up in a family where nobody spoke about atrocities of the past. It was hush-hush. It was um, too horrible to speak about. So the subject wasn't an open one. At the same time, I came to understand as I explored my coming of age and my growing up closely in my own memoir, that no matter how hard traumatized people try to repress the past, they often and most often can't. That stuff leaks out, and the leakages are very interesting and powerful. So with my grandmother, 
a lot of my understanding of her traumatized life came through the leakages, through what I call encoded meanings. And sometimes they were apparent to me, in retrospect at least, in, in the dreams and the folk tales she told me. Later, I'd come to put it all together. But as a kid, I didn't have a context for it. I just picked it up. In an interview with Charlie Rose, you quoted President Obama's statement regarding the Armenian genocide. Uh, He said that an unresolved history will become a burden too complicated to carry. You must deal with your past honestly. What does that mean for us today in America? How do the former president's words help us considering our history and the state of race relations today? That's a profound statement that President Obama made. He made that to the Turkish government in the Turkish parliament, which is quite astonishing. And they were enraged at his going there. I think his statement is a truism. That is, societies that are trying to deny and repress and cover up past atrocities and crimes are harming themselves because the perpetrators of those crimes can't hide and they become increasingly corrupt in their denial. And the victims of those crimes are festering in wound and anger and rage, and that's going to come out as well. And so the healthiest approach is always honesty and acknowledgement. I'm glad you raised that statement by President Obama. It's a statement that all healthy societies need to live by. And the U.S. still has plenty of work to do in repair and memory and acknowledgement. We're quite a divided society. Some of our society is very together in its ability to deal with the past, very honest and uh, articulate and ethical. And then we have segments of our society that refuse to deal with the past, that want to live in a dreamland, in a fake land, in which, you know, there's this denialist narrative that everything is good and everybody's happy and no one should complain. And this is, you know, false consciousness. Can we talk about your idea of lyric imagination? You write about it in Vise and Shadow. Well, the lyric imagination is my term for imaginative works in all the arts that are less interested in linearity and traditional narrative and are more interested in probing experience through non-narrative and lyric expression. Poems are often non-narrative lyrical. Dance often is. A lot of cinema is. Certain kinds of novels are non-narrative. Most music is lyrical. It's not narrative. It's it's non-linear. So the lyric imagination often, too, probes emotion and aesthetic perception as a denser form so that we might look at an abstract painting and see that 
particular coatings of color are teaching us something in a different way. Same is true in, in many of the popular songs we love or think of as the jukebox of our time come out of a lyric approach to the imagination. And that's true of poems. Poems can be narrative and poems can tell stories, but they can also probe deep into the psyche, into emotion, and into trauma and memory through images. So the lyric imagination is often tied up in the making of images. And as eminent psychiatrist and historian Robert Lifton has noted, as human beings, we live on images. We are image-making creatures. We cannot create communities and societies without our own image constructions. As a poet, you've had tremendous success. You have seven collections of poetry and won the Pulitzer Prize for Ozone Journal back in 2016. Your poetry creates these images that shine a light on the darker sides of history. So why poetry? Like, How have you bridged these worlds of, of history and the darker sides of history and poetry? Well, the question why poetry is a question one might ask any artist about why the why why they work in the medium they work in and if you're asking me that <laughs> I, I don't I, I don't have a simple answer we work in the art form we work in over years and years because we're obsessed with it and we believe that it's the most profound form now, I think all artists probably believe that the form they work in is profound. It's urgent. It's necessary. The human species needs this art form. Whether you're a painter, a composer, a sculptor, a dancer, a poet, a fiction writer. So the, the lyric poem for me has been the bottom line, and I'm somehow, like many other poets, were wired for poems. That's what that's how we want to negotiate the world in these more compressed linguistic forms that poems are. So I started writing as a college student and I never stopped because that's how I am as a writer. That's my writer engine. Poems can travel in many vectors. Poets can be non representational, conceptual Poets can be drawn toward the very personal and private experience, and poets can be drawn toward the social world and the big flow of catastrophic events that erupt in that social world. Poets can be drawn to the historical. The great poets that have been my teachers in a way have been very much poets of both the personal and the historical and the social. Yeats, Whitman, Wordsworth, T.S. Eliot, Adrian Rich, Gwendolyn Brooks, Robert Lowell. You know, so poets want to have range. Poets want to devour all human experience. But our inclinations tend to lead us certain places. 
Yates is such an amazing model because he could do the intimate and personal and the psychological and even transcend, transcendental as well as the historical and the cultural and the and the traumatic. So I would point our readers to Yates as a model. That was a great answer. You kind of took me on a journey there. That was awesome. You're listening to an interview with Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Peter Balakian. Tonight's program was recorded around Balakian's keynote address to the 2018 Social Justice Dialogue series in early March. Stay tuned, and we'll be back with more Georgia College Connections. Thank you for staying tuned to Georgia College Connections. We return now to a conversation between Georgia College's Olivia Julian and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Peter Balakian. Peter Balakian delivered the keynote address to the 2018 Social Justice Dialogue series in early March. You once said that art acts as the glue between culture and civilization. What does that mean to you? Human societies have for generations, millennia, been held together by their artistic creations. What's left after the money and material goods are gone, after people's bodies are gone, what's left often are the works of imagination. And often those works are literary because texts are more durable as physical objects than buildings, which are great and very important buildings, sometimes the visual arts, they're a little bit fragile. They can be destroyed by many things. Literary texts and other intellectual texts often survive and survive and survive. I mean, what holds what holds Jewish culture today more perhaps than the Hebrew Bible? And it's how many thousands of years old? Uh, how many societies are held together by texts that have been written hundreds and more years ago? Identity and ritual, social transactions, are all negotiated by works of imagination. And we need to remember that in a time especially when there's so much assault on intellectual life. I mean, what the Trump people are doing to the intellectual fabric of the nation is a disgrace. The assault on on science, the assault on research, the assault on the arts, the assault on knowledge. I hope this horrible moment will pass soon, but I think it's instructive, and I think we should be paying attention to why intellectual life and the arts are so vital uh, to a healthy democracy. As an English major with a literature concentration, I have the opportunity to interact with these books in my education. How would you encourage students in other majors to utilize their education to engage in this social justice mission? Well, I think reading is the bottom line. 
there's been anxiety expressed about the relationship between literature and the public. And the question has been asked, are we in a post-literary age? Uh, has the Internet taken over our lives and our minds? Do we just live by cell phones and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat? Is that our life? Are we just people who have three-second attention spans? Is there no longer any any uh, commitment to serious, thoughtful engagement with language and ideas? Well, my response to that is probably complex. I'm concerned, too, that the digital age and all of those dimensions I noted threaten our attention span, our cognitive ways of knowing, our ability to concentrate and read and think. But we have to resist that. Um, we, as a civilization, have to continue to be immersed in and connect with and take seriously language and literature and scholarly works. Because without a serious grasp of human problems, we're lost. You know, we're stuck with cliches, cartoons, simplistic slogans. And I see these simplistic slogans, you know, really, really as corrosive to the American project. We're replacing serious, nuanced, complex thinking with words like family values or personal responsibility and these kinds of catchphrases, which have no grounding in complexity. And I think we, we have to resist that. We have to resist propaganda. We have to insist on evidence and facts. And we have to insist on complexity. We have to insist on nuance. And that's where, that's where literature and serious works of literature uh, are part of, you know, if you want to use the word social justice in a, in a broad way, that's true. But also part of being a citizen in a democracy who's committed to solving complicated problems with real intellect. Lastly, what advice do you have for a writer looking to bring social issues into their work? Well, I think the writer who's interested in the social world first has to really learn her craft well, whatever the craft may be, poem, novel, short story, play, creative nonfiction. You have to learn the craft well. Yeats put it well when he said, Irish poets know your trade, make whatever is well made. It's one of his last poems in under Ben Bulbin. He's appealing to the poets who will come after him. Learn your trade, make it well. Once you once you have your craft and your technique, you know, really polished and refined and, and you're working with the medium you love, then the subjects you take in are going to become more appealing and rich, and they're going to make it over the line. You know, they're going to get out into the wider world of readers. I think writers have to learn how to make their art really well, then figure out how they want to take on those issues they're obsessed with. Every writer has an orientation. 
toward the world. And there's no right or wrong orientation. There's, a, there's whatever orientation a writer has. But given that orientation, the writer really wants to be able to get the most out of it. You know, I really encourage a lot of writing and rewriting. And I encourage a lot of drafts. Writers live in drafts over and over, tweaking, editing, refining. The love of a draft is an important thing for a writer, whether she's 20 or 90. Well, you have certainly learned your craft well, and uh, it's just been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. You just heard a conversation between Georgia College's Olivia Julian and Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Peter Balakian. Balakian delivered the keynote address to the 2018 Social Justice Dialogue Series in early March. And that concludes this year's collaboration with the John H. Lounsbury College of Education to bring their Social Justice Dialogue Series to our radio audience. I want to thank you for convening with me here for this conversation on the role of social justice in education. And I look forward to convening with you soon.